The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Raising the BCMA Standard in Multiple Myeloma, Strategies for Enhanced Care with Potent CAR-T and Bispecific Options. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash MGG860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning and welcome to this symposium, Raising the BCMA Standard in Multiple Myeloma. I'm Nikhil Manshi um, from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and it's my pleasure to be here with my co-panelist, Dr. Karina Patel from uh, MD Anderson, uh, Dr. Mohamed Mothi from um, Sorbonne University, and Dr. Hans Lee from MD Anderson Cancer Center. Um, it's interesting that the title is uh, Raising the BCMA Standard. Last year, we had a similar symposium on BCMA as a target in multiple myeloma. In one year, we are beginning to raise the standard. So that tells you the progress in this disease. Why this symposium? It's because of the great advances we have. If you can see these curves from 1970s to 2000, we have significant improvement in outcomes in this patient. However, one of the challenges has been the attrition. If you look at the patient population, only quarter of the patients um, will end up receiving more than four lines of treatment. And I think that's a major issue so that we need new drugs to be started sooner. There's a very nice presentation in this ASH which looks at the real-world data. And it tells us that if you have patients with triple-class exposure, or triple-class refractory patient, they do not remain uh, on the treatment for very long as they're beginning to become resistant. So we need good treatments and we need good treatment soon. Now, what has happened in this field? I mean, if you look at our traditional drugs, which are very good drugs, we all use it as a standard of care, pomalidomide, lenalidomide, bortezomib. Their approval has been based on 30% response rate, and they're still one of our best drugs in combination. What has changed in the last two years is that if you look at the five most recent drugs approved in this disease, they all have response rates 60 to 98%. Very different landscape now in how we use it. And that's why a symposium like this is so necessary. We have BCMA targeting drugs approved since 2020, Belentimab, which in U.S. currently is withdrawn because of the DREAM3 data. But there are very encouraging combination results there. We have two CAR T cells, Idacel and Siltacel, and then we have two bispecific teclistimab and andurantimab. And more recently, talquetimab targeting GPRC5D is also approved, and you will hear about the advances, the uses um, of this agent. So the goal for us today is to improve our knowledge about mechanism of actions and the clinical evidence for their incorporation in treatment, both CAR T cells and bispecific, Understand how do we integrate this treatment in our practice, at what stage, what line of treatment, and then learn about the toxicities, learn about their deliveries, and other nuances of taking care of these patients in our practice on an ongoing basis. Now, this symposium is also uh, sponsored by Health3 Foundation for Multiple Myeloma. Health3 provides lifetime personalized support and education to patients. It provides meaningful patient-to-patient -patient connections and a powerful patient data portal, which transforms patients into active contributors to research. Very important component of what we do, having a real life evidence like this. 
There have been 76 surveys, um, 65,000 study participants, 78 investigators involved, very broad, very comprehensive analysis being done. So with that background, I'll move on to discussing the first part of this uh, symposium, which is on track for better outcome with BCMA CAR T cells and the clinical experience till date. So we'll go with the case first. So this is a 76-year-old gentleman, um, relapsed refractory myeloma, performance status one, has four lines of therapy with RVD induction, transplant, with rev maintenance for two and a half years. Patient received Dara Pomdax, um, then on a progression received Carfilzomib Dax and subsequently received Carfilzomib Cytoxan Dax. Now patient is progressing, um, creatinine is 1.8. And so the question from my colleagues here is, um, and this is a real-life scenario, we see these patients very often. Half of the patients in myeloma are above age of 70 at diagnosis, and then you follow. So we are dealing with half the patients who are going to be above age 71. He is, this gentleman is 75. So to my panelists, the question is, does the age matter? Yeah. Um, I think we've had this conversation a few times, but no, um, you know, I, I think at least in the U.S., um, we don't say that any age cuts you off from any type of therapy for myeloma. And we know that different people of different ages are, are different functional capabilities. So there are patients who are younger that might have multiple comorbidities that I might not take versus an older patient who, you know, is doing great and not very many comorbidities. Our oldest patient's 90 that we've taken to CAR-T. So I think, um, you know, we have to make sure they're going to do well. Um, and we might need extra people to help us to get them through. But um, to me, age doesn't matter. I think, I think age is a matter of mind. And actually, when uh, it's about comorbidities, it's about general status. And when a patient or someone is 75 or 76, actually, in theory, you still have another nine or 10 years of life expectancy. So it is worth to envision any effective treatments. So Dr. Lee, does creatinine of 1.8 bother you? Yeah, so the creatinine is a consideration uh, potentially as part of lymphodepletion when fludarabine is used um, prior to CAR-T, but there is data supporting the use of fludarabine and CAR-T uh, in patients with renal dysfunction. So that in itself wouldn't necessarily preclude, but uh, one must consider the dose adjust of fludarabine depending on the, the creatinine clearance. And so that is consideration, but not a deal breaker. Thank you. So I think that's a very important point that unlike transplant, where we are more careful with age, performance status in a strict sense, also renal function in a more uh, sometimes liberal, but also quite keeping in mind, for CAR-T treatments, we do not have those many restrictions. We all probably have patients above age of 80 or near who have had CAR-T cells successfully and safely. So I think we have a much broader patient population. Similar to add, the cardiac functions are not as strictly followed. We don't always end up doing ejection fraction, et cetera, depending upon patient's performance status. So we have a broader latitude to select patients um, based on um, their other cardiopulmonary morbidities and other uh, comorbidities. So if we look at what drives this, um, this result, um, there are two approved CAR T cell product. One, IDASEL, um, which the 41BB as the molecule in CD3 zeta, um, and you can see on the left side. Um, 
And then Siltacel has a unique uh, dual binding uh, domains for CAR T cells. These both of the products are now commercially available and we are all experienced in using them. Now, the guidelines suggest, there are many guidelines, but they're all partly driven by the FDA approval process. So FDA approval is for CAR T cells at the, t at the present time, and we're hoping it'll change as we will discuss soon. But at the present time, patients should have a four prior lines of therapy, um, and it must include proteasome inhibitor, immunomodulator, and anti-CD38 antibody. Um, both Siltacel supported by Cartitude and uh, Idacel supported by Karma uh, have been extensively utilized, and you will hear more about the bispecific later on in this session. Now, Karma 1 was the approval for Idacel. It showed that there's a target dose of 450 million cells, um, which we tried to get to. The overall response rate was 80%, with close to 40% patients getting CR. Um, time, they, this treatment works incredibly fast. The median time here uh, is called one month for response, but we have all had patients who would have responded within less than a week. Uh, literally in front of your eyes, they respond. So very fast-acting treatment. And with a median follow-up of 13.3 months, the PFS has been around 8.8 .8 months, except patients receiving CR, 12 months. The second CAR-T cell is based on CAR-T-Tude 1 data for, for Silta cell. The results are incredible, 97.9, a 98% response rate. 82% um, patient had achieving complete remission. And the most recent update um, shows that the PFS is 35 months, duration of response is 34 months, so almost three years of PFS. And I must remind you that these are the patients who have had median of six lines of treatment. So very advanced disease. Any other alternate treatment in this patient group would have a PFS of between three and four months. Response rate at the best would be 20% or thereabouts. So incredibly effective treatment. And if you look at overall survival, median has not been reached yet, but at three years, 63% patients are alive and event-free. So um, incredibly effective treatment for both of them. One more point, why do we all say age doesn't matter? Because um, we are all getting old too. But it's because um, I think the results are very similar if you look at young patients or patients about 70. Um, 70 is not old. So you can see the responses are similar between 65 and 70. And very importantly, if you look at the toxicity, patients above 70 do not have excessively higher toxicity. Their tolerance remains relatively similar. So I think we have to keep that in mind as we select patients for our treatments. What is more important is not what we do in the study. Because in study, we have a very prescribed criteria for entering patients. They're better patients. However, the real-world data is most important to look at. And, and we have now real data for both the products. So if you look at um, uh, IDASEL, um, in the real world, 75% of the patients who got IDASEL would not have qualified for um, the study itself. So they're sicker or more uh, having comorbidities. Even then, you could see the outcome is outstanding. And if you see for Siltacel, exactly similar scenario, um, majority of the patients would not have qualified for CARTITUDE 1 in the real world, 143 patient data. And you can see that um, with the median follow-up short, because this is available only for a year, um, PFS is 67% at 12 months and OS 80% at 12 months. So even in real world, 
where we put much sicker patient, the outcomes are very, very encouraging for this patient population. Now, um, let's look at the case a little further. So there are two more data points for this patient. One is that the bone marrow before going on CAR T cell in for this patient had 90% involvement, so high indices burden, and patient had T414 and 1Q gain. And the newer definition of high risk that you will hear in the near future, the both combined makes it a true high risk patient population. So the question to my panelist is that this high indices burden do you think um, one needs to worry about it in regards to toxicity, CRS, eye cancer, or others? So um, I would love to hear your views. No, I think this is great. Um, you know, in the trials, patients are relapsing, and that's how they get on. In the real world, the logistics, especially for our sicker patients, make it much harder. Um, I think getting them to collection is really important. So yes, if I had a slot for this patient, I can get them in. I want to get those the, the cells done so that we can start making them because it can take you know four to eight weeks. But during the bridging, my goal is to knock that 90% down as much as possible because we do know that there's much higher CRS and ICANs when you have a lot of myeloma going in. Um, and the responses are much better when you have less myeloma, um, longer PFS, et cetera. So um, bridging really, really matters. I think based on the experience with lymphoma and ALL, we thought that the incidence of CRS and ICANS would be higher with high tumor burden. I think in myeloma, the current experience suggests that there are some good news, that the incidence could be relatively high, but the severity is very mild, moderate, grade one or two. So I wouldn't be worried about it. I, I think this, this case points to an important point that it's really important to have a bridging regimen that you can use. And I think speaks and Karina will talk about this earlier about using carotene earlier lines of therapy because having that bridging regimen that's that's available to decide to reduce the patient is is important. And even potentially in this particular patient, you know, the patient received cyclophosphamide just before uh, this next line of therapy. You know, again, perhaps trying to avoid or mitigate the exposure to alkylator agents prior to T cell collection may be another important aspect of this case. So, so then the second question is, and it's a little bit more broader question, is the patient is a high-risk myeloma. So there are two aspects to it. One is, does it impact the outcome of the patient? And number two, does that make patient a candidate that we should be thinking about this type of intervention at a different time point? So first question, do we think that having a high-risk features um, impacts the outcome of this patient? Yeah, so we know our novel immunotherapies really work well for for our patients with high risk, but they still don't make them standard risk, right? Every every hazard ratio forest plot shows it's usually our high risk patients, cytogenetics, even extramedullary disease, um, you know, uh, pentarefractory patients that tend to have that lower PFFs. Um, so the earlier I can take this patient, the better. So when we talk about my talk, yes, like this patient is going to be much harder to get through collection bridging and to actual infusion of cells um, at this point than if um, they had less myeloma and maybe not so much high-risk disease. Because even during bridging, as Vahan said, what are we going to give them when they've been exposed to all of this um, to actually cytoreduce to get them to you know, even the infusion? CAR, CAR T cells are a form of cellular immune therapy, and this is an agnostic form of treatment. So one would envision that it should work very well in the high-risk. However, we it's a sort of a gray zone for the time being. 
work in progress, I would say, but definitely it's a very good option. So Dr. Lee, I would modify question a little bit. So this high-risk patients would end up with um, more chances of having extra medullary disease, because that's the nature of the disease. And, and there's a lot of discussion about escape from this therapy with EMD. So could you highlight on the role of EMD in treating these patients and uh, how we need to be probably doing it anyway, um, but emphasizing the follow-ups in certain way? Yeah, it's, that's a great point. And EMD has been historically a very, very difficult patient population to treat with our therapies that we have currently available. It's historically been difficult to get responses and to have durable responses as well. And so even with CAR T and bispecifics, it's still been a challenge to have durability responses. EMD is a poor prognostic marker. And so I think this is where we need novel strategies, you know, maybe consolidate patients uh, who still have residual EMD with radiation or other novel immunotherapies. Uh, and I think that that that's still an unmet need that I think is a, a, an area that we will still focus on in the future. So to look at then toxicity issues, um, they're standard toxicity, both cell and cell. they're almost uniformly 90% or so has CRS. Now for lower grade, uh, I think uh, well-managed, I think over the last five, seven years since we have been all doing it, we know how to manage these patients. Similarly, the neurotoxicity around 20% or less, um, usually low grade, very few patients are grade three, and the toxicity management also for that is very standardized. Um, and then cytopenia are something that I would be more concerned with because that can last and that can cause um, infectious problem. Similarly, delayed neurotoxicity, as Dr. Patel said, we control the disease burden, we can mitigate some of those issues as well. Now, two of the toxicity CRS, and we, I'm sure you have heard a lot about it, so I wouldn't go into great details. Starts with fever generally, um, then occasional patients could have respiratory issues, uh, hypoxia, and or uh, blood pressure, uh, cardiac issue, hypertension, or tachycardia. And the supporting care plus tocilizumab uh, covers it very well. Uh, rarely we require steroid in this patient population. And same way neurotoxicity starts with headache, um, but then confusion, delirium could be a little bit more advanced phase, exceedingly rare. You could see encephalopathy and related issues. Again, um, tocilizumab followed by um, anti-seizure medicine and also steroids are standard of care. So I think there is a very good management algorithm for this patient population. However, one question I would like for the panel to answer because this has uh, uh, been very much at the forefront of recent discussion in CAR T cell, not just in myeloma, but also in lymphoma. There was this recent uh, announcement by FDA about having second malignancy T cell malignancies with all various CAR T cell products. So I think I would like to get view and emphasis on the importance of treatment versus infrequency of this kind of side effect. So I think, uh, would you uh, highlight on that? Yeah, no, I think that's a very important topic. Um, you know, we we know that this is a potential and that's why we follow our patients for 15 years when they've gotten CAR-T, both on trials and standard of care, to make sure that we're not seeing this. And I think it's about 19 um, patients out of 7,500. Um, and we look at SEER data for at least lymphoma, you actually see that a higher risk of T-cell lymphomas and leukemias as secondary cancer. So I think it's really important to put this in context. Yes, it's important for us to look at this, 
make sure we're not seeing a big signal. And if we do, you know, what do we do to change that? But really, um, the risk of myeloma, and especially these patients, is, is more likely going to cause lots of problems. And we have such amazing responses um, that, you know, it's important to talk about it, to look at it. But clinically, um, we know that they have that same risk even without CAR-T. So I think it'll be important to see what the, the data shows, but I'm not too worried about it. I believe we, we all agree that stringent pharmacovigilance for any new therapy is crucial. And I think our regulatory bodies should be praised and commended for doing this. Having said this, uh, we need to be pragmatic. And this story reminds me uh, of ASH 2015 when there was this alert about secondary primary malignancies with nenalidomide, which is a true fact. But at the end of the day, I believe in myeloma and now after hundreds, if not thousands of patients being treatment, I believe these patients are dying from their disease. And we need to be aware of the side effects. Obviously, uh, the investigations are ongoing and we'll know better about it soon, I hope. But at this uh, time, I don't believe there is a reason for like big alert, uh, red flag, etc. Work in progress. So, Dr. Lee, do you do anything different with this new new knowledge? Yeah, I, I agree completely with my colleagues. I think, you know, this is important to to track and study. But in, in the, at the end of the day, does it significantly alter the risk-benefit ratio of this therapy? And I would say no. Uh, and I, I think as people have mentioned, you know, the risk of myeloma is very, very high. The risk of having bad complications and, and dying from myeloma is very, very high. So at this point, with the data available, the risk-benefit ratio has not been altered in my mind. Perfect. So so if I sort of repeat myself, because this is a very critically important point that the physicians ask, the doctors ask, and everybody else, is that both lymphoma and myeloma patients are older. They have a high risk of second malignancy period, whether it's lenalidomide, post-lenalidomide, or post-any other treatment. These treatments are so incredibly effective at a stage where they don't have many options, and even in an earlier stage. Um, and the frequency of what is currently observed, um, T-cell malignancy and or other, is so small that in none of our, you, you heard our, our panel, but also our colleagues out, uh, not on the panel, have the same opinion. This hasn't affected anything we do even a bit. And I think that's the right decision. That's one part. The second part for all of us to remember that we have to be vigilant, as Professor Moti said, um, pharmacovigilance is important. The FDA requires that any patient getting the gene transduced cell needs to be followed for 15 years, and that's exactly for this reason, because there are a lot of things we still don't know, and we can always mitigate, we can always manage. And so being vigilant about side effects, looking for certain things is important. Um, it does not have impact in any way our practice of utilizing this, and we can discuss further later on as the questions come about. So there are four important takeaways uh, from this presentation. Um, it's important to consider patient uh, for CAR T cells, especially because we need to collect the cells, and the better quality of cells we collect, better the outcome, that's clear data. So start the process of identifying patient for potential CAR T cell, at least one line before they're ready for it. Especially you can tailor the line, last line of treatment not to impact the T-cell quality and T-cell fitness. So earlier in, uh, selection is better. Number two, um, we have to keep in mind certain drugs need to be avoided 
because it impacts the type of cells we collect, dexamethasone, bendamustine, melphalan, cytoxan. So we want to be cognizant that we need to keep the T-self, again, fitness uh, in a good shape. And there is much more emerging data about pharesis product, CAR-T product, and the eventual outcome. Bridging therapy is important. Um, and um, as the patient comes in early, depending upon how much disease burden is, as Dr. Patel said, unlike the studies, this is where we have freedom to decrease the tumor burden so that there are less side effects and toxicities. And finally, the last point is that be familiar with infection management. In my mind, CAR T cell, uh, and we'll go for bispecific as well, the issues are not CRS, issues are not neurotoxicity. We know how to handle it. But the longer-term management of infection and mainly prevention, because we can prevent it, is a critical component to having a successful uh, CAR T cell treatment, maintaining good quality of life. And so there are recommendations for this kind of management. And I wouldn't go through each of them. I think it's quite intuitive in many ways. You perform this in regards to um, treatment for many malignancies, uh, induction for AML, post-autologous transplant, etc. But managing um, hypogammaglobulinemia is a very important component. And the reason is that the CAR T cells um, that we give targets myeloma cells, but also targets normal plasma cells. And so you would have hypogammaglobulinemia really putting patients at risk for, for infections of various types. And this is where we routinely provide IVIG support on a monthly basis, especially if their IgG is less than 400. Some people use 500 limit, either could be fine. Um, we need PCP prophylaxis, especially if the counts are lower. Bactrim is the usual agent. And we need viral prophylaxis um, to prevent herpes-related issues, even if patient has previously received um, vaccination for that, because I think these are minimum required elements to keep patients safe. Um, COVID-19, I think that's an ongoing issue. I think even though COVID has become a less of a life-threatening issue, it's an ongoing problem. Um, managing patients, um, CAR-T patients for either first prevention and next treatment of COVID is of great importance because they're at a great risk and it depends off on various institutional policies. And maybe at, at the end, I will ask my panelists to see if they have any special word of wisdom for COVID management. The other things are not so common. CMV is not routinely followed, but if patient has prolonged cytopenia or other CMV activation symptoms or syndromes, then we can follow them. And same thing goes for PCP. So the last question for my part of the session is, um, because COVID is so common, any word of wisdom uh, Dr. Lee, on um, managing, preventing, treating COVID in these patient populations. Yeah, I, I, I think COVID-19 is still relevant to our immunosuppressed patient population. So it's very important to be aggressive with hopefully prevention and mitigation. And so even though vaccine responses are blunted in patients who are immunosuppressed, it's still important to get vaccinated and, and up with the updated vaccines because still some response is better than no response. And I think uh, eat through that pre and also consider revaccination post-CAR-T as well. Any additional comments? No, agreed. And look for it. If someone has runny nose, et cetera, I test just to make sure if I know they have it. And then if I have availability of treatments. Um, it, you know. I'll highlight one scenario to, to emphasize how important COVID situation is. We have at our institution and we are not, our patients are not in excess risk of getting COVID. I would preface my answer with that. 
we have six patients who became COVID positive between getting their lymphodepletion and getting their CAR T cell infusion. It's only four to five days time. We do check COVID before they get their lymphodepletion, they're negative. Four days later, they get admitted and get their CAR T cell. We checked before that and they were positive just between the time. And then the issue comes, how do you manage them? So the algorithms develop because we have uh, identified quite a few patients. But the, to emphasize the point, there is a significant um, need to keep in mind COVID. As Dr. Patel said, be cognizant if there's uh, coughing, sniffing, etc. Look for it because you can, we can very effectively treat um, and manage this patient without any complication. So I think this is uh, for the first part of our presentation. Um, we need to know that the manufacturing process requires four to eight weeks just to re-emphasize, and we are all dependent on slots. Um, and so we will have time when we can select a patient for CAR T and can immediately go currently, that is still not the case. I think everyone is expanding their capability. So we have to keep that in mind. And the last word is that there are a lot of plans for improvement. Yes, the title of this one is Raising the BCMS Standard. I think our title for next time would be something even more fancier because some of these newer methods to improve the outcomes with CAR T cells are going to be instituted. It includes using dual antigen, it includes doing different antigen, different transduction method, also improving the type of T cell, whether we select CD4, CD8, or central memory cells for infusion. We, increase it, we can increase the uh, expression of the target. And finally, as you are gonna see in a minute, we can do it at an earlier time point when patients are in a better shape to get the better benefit. Um, and uh, it's my pleasure to invite Dr. Karina Patel to take it from here. Perfect. Well, thank you all for coming so early. This is amazing to see the entire room filled. And Dr. Munshi, um, with that great um, intro and initial studies of CAR-T, my COI is I think everybody should get CAR-T, um, even our 80 and 90-year-olds, as long as we can get them through it. So um, I'm really excited that hopefully very, very soon we'll be able to actually give it much earlier. Um, and I think, you know, we'll come back to this case in a second, but really, the, the patients right now in fifth line, we know that with each line of therapy, our myeloma, there's less and less myeloma patients that get there, either because of our myeloma or complications. We have patients that drop out, they die. So a lot of our patients can't even get access to the CAR-T in that fifth line because they can't get to that line. So um, we can talk about logistics and things like that that are improving hopefully in the future as well, but this is really, really exciting. So coming back to Michael, 72-year-old, relapsed refractory myeloma, PS1, had RBD induction, then had transplant with LEN maintenance, but progressed after two and a half years. Um, so a little bit early progression, right? We, we say two years is high risk, but functionally two and a half years is not really what we like to see as, um, as a optimal um, transplant LEN maintenance, um, consolidation maintenance. So he has early progression. Now he's LEN refractory. He was on LEN. Um, even though it's low dose, we call that refractory. So he's functionally high risk. So if you had availability for early CAR-T now, knowing the data that we're about to present, would you actually use CAR-T as an option here? I can take it first. So I think what is important for early treatment and even later treatment is to get MRD negativity. I think in newly diagnosed setting, you heard a lot about MRD negativity and it's critically important to get a better outcome. 
Same thing applies to relapse patient, whether it's first, second, or third line. And currently, if you put everything in the perspective, which treatment gives us the best MRD negativity? And I don't think there is any doubt, especially this panel, because of course, we are a little biased in favor of CAR T, but that gives us the highest. So I would definitely try to utilize it as early as I'm allowed to utilize. Of course, there are data pending and some of the data is already there for this particular patient. I think there is good enough data that I would consider it early if, I, if I'm having access to. Yeah. And actually, if we ask the patient, the short answer is, I want CAR T cells. To have that break. Yeah. Hans, anything different? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think just the ability to do it earlier will allow for optimal bridging and optimal side reduction. And it's less of a complicated scenario where, you know, if there's some delay in getting the cells back or whatnot, that's, that's okay because patients actually will be able to have disease control, you know, hopefully for a period of time on their second line therapy. And so there's a lot more flexibility in administering the CAR-T when you do it earlier. So on that note, the bridging, you know, any particular thoughts for this patient, what you would use? Because you have so many options, um, you know, RVD, what would you use for bridging in second line? Yeah, so I would use a CD38-based regimen since the patient hasn't been CD38 exposed. And, you know, if the patient is, is progressing very rapidly, short duration remission on LEN maintenance, I'd consider a daratumab prosim inhibitor-based regimen, such as daratumab carfilzomib dexamethasone uh, or darabelkadex. But even DPD could be an option because, again, you need just control for a few months uh, before uh, the patient gets CAR-T. Yeah, anything different um, that you guys think? So I, I totally agree. agree. Okay, perfect. Um, so coming to the studies, right? So we we had a couple of studies that read out this uh, summer and um, and ASCO last year. So Cartitude four is looking at siltacel versus PVD or DPD in patients who are lines two, so one to three prior lines, so second to fourth line of treatment. So one of the earliest studies we have in CAR T. Um, patients did not have to have CD38 um, um, exposure, so that was a little different. So these are earlier line, and they had to be refractory to lenalidomide. Um, so really important to look at these different, um, you know, uh, patient populations because they are different amongst all the different trials. And hopefully one day we'll be able to convince FDA to be able to say, you know, it should be refractory or exposed rather than lines of therapy. As we change therapy so fast in myeloma, our patients are very different in early lines of therapy now. So again refractory to LEN, no prior treatment with BCMA therapies, um, and couldn't have monoclonal antibody treatment within at least 21 days. Um, so again, a large study looking at uh, PVD versus DPD um, or cell in second line. And really, they're looking for progression-free survival and then um, secondary outcomes for depth of response and quality of life. So this, this is one of the best curves we've ever had for myeloma. Um, again, median PFS not reached in the cell to cell group and 11.8 months in the standard of care group. The majority of patients did get DPD. Um, I think it was like 85% of patients, um, but um, PVD was an option for those patients who were DARA exposed or DARA refractory. So again, you know, they, they looked at week eight um, where they had some drop off for both sides before and when they did the intention to treat, but a hazard ratio of 0.26 is um, pretty impressive for any therapy. Um, and then looking at the forest plots, so again, you know, in high risk and refractory myeloma, we talked about this, um, still really, really important. Um, it does help patients who are um, high risk. Again, most of our therapies don't improve compared to standard risk, but this comes pretty close in my opinion. Um, so even if patients had 
um, multiple different reasons. 1Q or the classical high risk 414, 1416, 17P, um, they still did well. Standard risk does you know almost just as well. So interesting to see that here um, for response. And then um, refractoriness. Again, our patients are very refractory, but this patient got RVD, but now we use quadruplet. So most of our patients are getting these things early line. So um, still worked really, really well for our patients that are multiply refractory to imid CD38 and PIs. Um, and then coming to what we were talking about earlier with bridging, why I harp on, yes, if I can get better bridging for my patients, they not just toxicity-wise, but low tumor burden measured by soluble BCMA in our patients is actually associated with optimal response and better safety. So here's that data. Um, for both cartitude, we have some data as well as Idacel. But when you have less myeloma, you tend to have less inflammation with the CRS and the theolitis, you know, that we see with um, ICANs, even if it's subclinical, um, and, and, and even less infection sometimes because of that. So again, um, patients do better when there's less myeloma there. It's similar to what we talk about with transplant, why we try to go in, in, in the best response to transplant for consolidation. Um, the immune therapy likes less this disease. Um, and then quality of life. So there's multiple different quality of life studies that have been done, but really compared to the standard of care arms, our patients, when they come to us, you know, you can see the data here in different functional scale symptoms, but they come and tell us what they're like, oh my gosh, I am not on therapy anymore. This is the first time I've not been on therapy for all this time. And when they do relapse, you know, one, two, three years later, they actually say, do you have another CAR-T I can go on? Um, because they just feel so much better when they're not coming in and, and on therapy with even the fatigue, et cetera, that they had before. So usually the symptoms are in that first three months, right, when they're getting the LD chemo and the CAR-T and looking for CRS. Um, but usually after that, that's where their quality of life really improves. And then again, we talked about um, you know other other studies that have been done. So CAR-T2 um, had multiple different cohorts, and this is looking at cohort A and B. Um, and cohort A is, again, patients who um, had one to three prior lines. And then um, um, cohort B is those patients who relapsed early after one line of treatment. And again, um, both had great response rates, um, no CAR-T-related safety signals, um, like that neurotoxicity that we had seen in CARTITUDE 1. Um, and again, this was the program where they started giving better bridging so that we can see if that helped the neurotox. And it did. It went from 9% delayed neurotoxicity in CARTITUDE 1 to 0.5% in the rest of their studies when you give better bridging. Um, so then coming to the other CAR-T that's also been done earlier now, so CARMA-3, um, this was also in relapse refractory myeloma. Here, this is one line later. So these patients had two to four prior regimens, so lines three to five now. Um, and these patients did have to have daratumumab at least exposure. Um, and majority were actually um, refractory as well. And everyone was refractory to the last line of treatment. Um, and again, this was a two-to-one um, randomization compared to CARTITUDE-4 was one-to-one. -one. Um, but here you got either IDACEL um, versus you had five options to pick from. So you picked based on what the person just had last or what they were refractory to. Again, this was one line later. So it was harder to just pick one or two because everyone does something different in that second, third line. Um, so it kind of tells us how myeloma physicians think when we're treating and what options we have um, based on where that patient is and what they've had before. So again, even one line later, um, these patients were pretty refractory. 95% of them were refractory to DARA here. So we know that DARA refractoriness usually tells us patients don't do as well. Um, but again, so you see the standard of care arm was 4.4 months. You saw in CARTITUDE 4, it was 11.4 months. So all the patients, just that one line did much worse here, but 13.3 months for IDACEL. So again, a huge difference in terms of standard of care of what we have versus what um, um, CAR-T can do.
And so again, we have our final uh, PFS outcomes and you'll see some overall survival data at the um, presentation that they're doing um, later this week. But again, significantly longer PFS with IDASEL. Um, PD or death was, um, risk was reduced by 51%, so pretty impressive for our patients. And again, single IDASEL infusion versus continuous therapy, so hazard ratio 0.49. And so what about safety? So we talked a little bit about, you know, we, we fourth, fifth line, yes, risk-benefit ratio is there. We, we want to do CAR-T, but what about earlier lines? Do you think the safety is still, um, you know, um, equivalent or, or is the benefit still worth the risk? And again, for both um, IDASEL that I have here, you know, hematologic, you know, those types of things we can really take care of. Infections, you know, we don't see much grade three, four, but they do happen, so we really have to watch out for those. Um, but really CRS and neurotoxicity, um, as Dr. Modi said earlier, for myeloma, we don't really worry about for the most part um, if our patients are going in with at least stable disease and not exploding disease, um, they tend to do well with that. But it's really the cytopenias and the infections that we we monitor very closely. Um, and same thing with cartitude 4. Um, you know, we do see cytopenias. Um, we do see some CAR-T associated um, the neurotoxicity. So, you know, there are some patients that get some movement or cognitive. Again, it was 0.6% compared to the 9% that was on cartitude one. So bridging really matters. Um, but there are some other things that we look out for, like facial palsy. So 10% of our patients can have that. So reversible, but things that we have to kind of monitor and then treat um, if they happen. Okay. So coming back to our patient, um, again, had RVD induction, 72 years old, was you know in first line with transplant lead maintenance and functionally um, relapsed early. So if there were other high risk features, would it provide a rationale for even earlier use of CAR T, or would you even potentially treat this patient just because they're functionally high risk? Um, Dr. Munshi, I'll ask you first. Yeah. So I think this is a very important and also frequently encountered issue where patient has a truly high risk disease, is bilirubin seventeen P or P53 deletion, et cetera, and we know they have a shorter outcome. And this is where, again, coming back to the same theme of getting MRD, true MRD negativity with 10 to minus 6 sensitivity or more, um, is critically important because that's probably the only way out for this patient. And they constitute almost 20% of the patient population, so it's not a small number. But this is a setting where I would certainly consider, and that's what we're all hoping, we'll have access to CART in that setting to take it as early as we can. As you know, there are studies currently looking at post-transplant. If patients do not get the MRD negativity or in some cases CR, they can get access to CAR T-cell in a study with exactly the same rationale that you can do transplant, get the best response, but if they don't get the best response that we, we are seeking, I would go and use CAR T. So certainly, and that's what we hope we have access to. No, I'm definitely in agreement. I think the near future is about getting CAR earlier, whether high risk or standard risk, actually, because although we're not bringing maybe high risk to become standard risk, but still uh, they are doing better with the immune therapies in general. Yeah. Yeah, and I just want to echo uh, Nikhil's point is, Achieving sustained MRD negativity in high-risk multiple is absolutely critical for the durability of response. And so that whatever therapy gets you there, do that therapy. Yeah. And I just, two things. We have patients that were on the earlier line 
trials, right, that were high risk. And they are three, four years out now with no myeloma. And I can't tell you that I would have been able to do that with any of the other therapies we have. Um, so one of our um, actually junior faculty has a poster on our high risk patients and just the people who are diagnosed early, they can't get to fifth line. They can't even get to these because their disease is just so bad. Um, so getting the, the high-risk patients early is really imperative because that's the only way they're going to have access and potentially a change in outcome um, that's durable over years because we know <laughs> patients get treated after their disease is different and sometimes even easier to treat than it was before. And I think Dr. Moti's point about standard risk, these are the patients we might actually cure, right? So there's about 15, 16% of patients that are six years out from that original legend study that are still in remission. So again, if we want to raise that bar, that's going to start with our standard risk patients. But again, it's that risk-benefit discussion we have with every patient when they're coming in. So, so if I um, sort of reverse the thing and yeah. take, ask a question. So in high-risk patient, post-transplant, we always give maintenance. Here, if you're going to do CAR T cells and we talk about one and done, do you think there is a role or is there a need for a role of maintenance post-CAR T cell? It's a controversial question because we are lacking true data. Right. But it would be good to give our own opinion uh, uh, Agree of what we should do. And I think it comes back to the sustained MRD that yes, you know, even in maintenance, there are patients that we do triple maintenance for, but if they're two years out and still MRD negative and doing well, I might drop it to one drug and four years out, I might drop it if they're having side effects, et cetera, versus pushing them through. So I agree with you. I think we have to get that MRD, but sustained. So likely for these patients with some of the novel therapies we have, we'll combine them to really get them and get everybody into that sustained. Even post so. But eventually stop. So I still want to stop for them too, if we can. But I agree. These are the patients that relapse early. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think the beauty about CAR T cells today is a single shot. And this is why everybody loves it, especially the patient. However, we need to acknowledge, and there are ongoing trials, actually, CAR T6, for instance, uh, randomizing CAR T cell to autotransplant is using maintenance. So the question, I'm not against maintenance, but maybe we need to figure out a sort of a short duration of maintenance because if we go back to the uh, continuous uh, duration treatment, we would lose a little bit of the beauty of CAR T cell. And I think in the absence of data, you know, probably just to pick and choose certain scenarios. So if a patient, for instance, had, you know, one year of, of response after transplant, realized with bulky extramedullary disease, you know that that's going to be very, very difficult to control long-term. That's a patient maybe you want to keep on therapy a little bit longer. So that's why I think we're not pinning ourselves down to what maintenance. I think that would be a question. But in, especially in high-risk patients where we know there is a good, uh, reasonable chance, uh, even late stage and early stage, I think some sort of consideration or a fixed duration may be in the offing. And just to reassure the colleagues, actually, there is a large outside clinical trial, large experience from China in many centers using emits, for instance, after CAR T cell to stimulate yeah. and activate it. Okay. So then talking about other novel ways that we can um, hopefully, you know, kill more myeloma cells, get MRD negative, and, and um, hopefully get more cures um, in longer PFS. What about targeting multiple targets? So now we have so many different targets, but this um, is a study that was presented last year, um, updated at ASCO, and I think again um, soon, but targeting BCMA and CD19. So this idea that maybe CD19 is on early myeloma cells or, or stem cells, um, there's been studies that you know have shown both sides, but I think the responses for these um, high-risk patients that got this BCMA CD19 dual CAR-T was pretty impressive. So this is a novel, fast T CAR-T platform 
22 to 36 hour manufacturing. That's the other impressive part about this. Um, you know, we really need things that make us get our CAR T's faster based on all the things we just talked about getting patients through bridging. Um, and again, just um, pretty amazing, um, deep and durable remissions that they've seen. I think it was like 95 or 100% response rate. Um, so here, um, this was RSS two or three stage. They had to have either high risk. Um, they had some kind of high risk feature, um, but really um, got this in first line and newly diagnosed and 100% um, MRD negativity as well. So again, um, going earlier helps and, and maybe targeting um, more than one target for especially our higher risk patients. Um, there's also other um, manufacturing um, um, processes that are being evaluated to make manufacturing faster. So dercaptogene is one of those with they use a T-charge manufacturing um, process to make BCMA-directed CAR-T um, within two days. Um, again, pretty amazing. Um, and uh, again, and, and it relies on you giving the T-cells at a low dose, but then they actually um, expand within the body, so in vivo, so that then they can go kill. So um, again, um, access is so big, and this would this could really change access. And again, response rates are, are phenomenal for multiple doses. The current standard of care in early relapse, um, you know, we still do use E38 base triplets, especially if patients haven't had it earlier. Um, but I think we do now have data, and hopefully, we'll have the approvals in the near future for BCMA CAR T in, in at least some patients in this um, line, um, including patients who are LEN refractory. Um, I think especially for high-risk patients that they can't even get to fifth line, and, and it does change outcomes for so many of our patients. It's really, really important to get them this therapy. Um, and, and we're really excited about the newer CAR-Ts to instead of four to eight weeks for us to you know wait. Hopefully, we can do it in two to seven days. Um, we still have to have um, clearance and make sure the cells are good, et cetera. But I think that could help a lot for access. Um, and then just coming back to Health Tree, you know, I've actually done a couple of conferences for them recently. Um, where we, they record a lot of our talks. Um, and just last week, I have patients that come in. I actually tell them, you know, they have this coach program. They have all these amazing things for you um, for support because I only have 15 minutes with them in clinic. I actually pulled up one of my talks on CAR-T and had them watch it. And um, it actually answers so many more questions than I can give them in that time. So again, great resources um, for some of these new therapies that we have specifically for patients on there. So with that, Dr. Moti. Thank you, Karina. Good, good morning, everybody, and thank you all for being here in a, such an early morning session. It is uh, such a pleasure to be part of this uh, uh, panel of esteemed colleagues under the leadership of Dr. Munshi, who has done a lot to advance his field of multiple myeloma. Uh, and actually, we're talking today about how to raise the bar in patient with uh, a median of six line or seven lines of therapy. But maybe a historical reminders to some of you, because in 1997, ASH was held here in San Diego 26 years ago. And the biggest highlight was malfalan high dose and autotransplant first life. And we thought that was a revolution. And you can see uh, the future uh, goes very uh, quickly, uh, actually. So here my task for the next uh, few minutes or so is to advocate, I would say, for bispecific antibodies, uh, which are actually the other form of immune therapy, which has become very, very uh, popular. And in order uh, to support my case, I'd like to share with you 
a real life case, and I believe many of you have seen uh, similar cases. This is uh, a young, relatively young lady, 67 year old, with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. Uh, performance status of one at presentation of a standard risk myeloma. I would say she received standard of care, quadruplet induction, DARA VRD, uh, high dose melphalan, lenalidomide maintenance. Unfortunately, she progressed. And then she was re-challenged with Dara Pomdex, similar to the Apollo trial. Unfortunately, she was only able to achieve PR and seven months of response. Then she uh, underwent a treatment with a doublet KD as part of a clinical trial, Carfizumib death. Again, PR. So Trini, a great responder. Uh, Duration of response, five months. And then, for some reason, uh, I must confess I ignore, uh, isotuximab was added to KD with the hope that this would improve the situation. Uh, but unfortunately, it didn't last long, and she had a very aggressive relapse. Uh, and in addition, during the workup, there were some, I would say, some additional uh, bad prognostic uh, markers. So here uh, I'd like maybe to ask my uh, colleagues uh, about the uh, best choice of treatment uh, for such a patient who has received anti-CD38 several times, emits, protism inhibitors, first generation, second generation. So triple class refractory, I would say. So, what would be your choice, uh, Nikhil, CAR-T or bispecific? I think it's a very deeper question. Um, part of the answer ends up being uh, whatever is available, except um, if CAR-T is available, which is where there is a bottleneck, BCMA is off the shelf and we can utilize it. Um, personally, I would consider CAR-T cell if available as the first option. And the answer would be why. Or, or the question would be why. Um, there are multiple reasons. So number one is that if you look at the responses, CAR-T provides, Xyltocell provides 98% response rate. It's certainly about 95%. Um, so much more effective. And, the, and if you look at biospecific, in the best scenario, the response rates are 60 to 70%. So there's high response rate. MRD negativity, CAR-T cell goes above 50, the other one does not. That's another criteria. And the third one, CART is one and done. It's whatever maintenance we do or not do. Um, on the other hand, bispecific um, needs to be continued for a longer period. And we'll see what that means or not. But because of all this reason, I would personally feel preference for CART if available. If not, bispecific provides very good response as well. And the second question would end up being, because both are to be utilized, hopefully, at some point. And the question would be, how do we sequence um, multiple BCMA targeting agent? And I guess we can keep that discussion, or we can go with that question as well. How do you sequence if you're both available, both accessible? Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you. If, again, I've told you all my conflict. I think everyone should get CAR-T first. But um, I think in this patient, right, so the logistics come in, and because that relapse is so aggressive, 
I always think, am I going to get this patient to cells? Um, and if I can't get that patient to cells, I can't let them die without at least getting a BCMA therapy because 60% is still better than anything else we have. So it's really hard sometimes to say, is someone going to make it through or not? But I think we're learning that when we get these patients, our goal is to get them into a remission um, and get to a res response because then we have more options. So for a patient like this, I would actually pick a bispecific to get their disease burden down. And then the question of sequencing comes up. So we have to deal with that. Um, we know that bispecifics, your T cells over time are going to get exhausted. And, and there have been some manufacturing failures if we give bispecifics for a long time and then try to make CAR T right after. We don't have all the answers. How long do you wait? Is it six months? You know, is it, Do we give something in between to help those T cells? But in the end, for at least relapse refractory patients like this, I, I got to get them to some therapy that we have. Um, and if they get a great response, you know, we'll talk about a little bit more of what we do with bispecifics that then hopefully later down the road, we can get CAR-T. But in any other patient, if I can do CAR-T first, um, I try, and then we try to do the, for efficacy as well, not just for making cells, but we know the efficacy of CAR-T then a bispecific tends to be much better. We don't see point mutations and all these other mechanism resistance as much in the CAR-T side of things as we do um, on the bispecific side. So, you know, yes, we're always thinking about what are the options next line, um, and we don't want to, you know, truncate any of those, but at the same time, I got to treat the patient that's in front of me. I mean, I think this really highlights that it's great in 2023 that we have many options for myeloma. So one size doesn't fit all. And so we have bispecifics and CAR T targeting BCMA that are highly effective in our patients. And I, I would uh, also lean towards the bispecific in the sense of the, the aggressive relapse. Of course, aggressive, what is aggressive, right? Is it biochemically aggressive? Is it exploding extramedullary disease? And I think really it just comes down to can I get this patient to cells? And if the feeling is no, I can't, then. I think bispecific would be the best. If if there is a possibility to get them to cells, then, and if there's a slot immediately available, insurance approval goes very smoothly, all these other things, you know, end up working out well, then CAR-T could certainly be an option. So, but again, we have many options. One size doesn't fit all, which is great. So I think one of the point would be that collecting the cells is an important uh, consideration. At what time and what best setting that we would do that? to take this patient to the best response between the options that we have. So de definitely these are actually, as you can see, there's no right or wrong answer. Obviously, uh, uh, there are pro and cons. And in this situation, uh, the choice, my choice went to bispecific antibodies because of this so-called aggressive relapse. And unfortunately, while waiting for the let's call it fast car in one or two days, we have to live with the word as it is and bispecific antibodies are available uh, immediately uh, off the shelf. And obviously, uh, there are some, I would say, uh, considerations uh, in terms of uh, uh, management. And we are actually very fortunate today, whether in North America or Europe and uh, other places across the globe, to have two anti-BCMA-directed bispecific antibodies being approved and widely used, namely teclistamab and uh, aronetamab. Uh, I will speak later about telkitamab, which targets GPR-C5D, and they are already part of the NCCN guidelines. And again, 
the key word here is about immune therapy. But in contrast to CAR T-cells, where you are taking the autologous T-cells, engineering them, educating them, uh, I would say, to fight against a malignant plasma cell, here we're doing a sort of an immune therapy in vivo because with a bispecific antibody, on one hand, you can, I would say, link the, uh, brings the T-cell through CD3 in contact with the malignant plasma cell with the tumor antigen BCMA. And this interaction uh, would lead to T-cell activation and would induce the uh, cytotoxic uh, cascade. And this is, I think, a fascinating uh, mechanism of uh, uh, action. And it's true both for teclistimab, uh, erlatimab, and all the other, I would say, bispecific uh, antibodies. And teclistimab was the first to be approved based on this so-called Majestic uh, 1 trial. And uh, it has shown, and it has been mentioned uh, by uh, my colleagues, uh, very uh, nice 63% uh, 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 objective response rate. But I would kindly draw your attention to the 45% uh, uh, CR, more than CR rate, which I think uh, would be of a great value. And as expected, uh, those patients treated earlier in the course of the disease actually are going uh, to do uh, better. And uh, uh, today, actually, uh, when uh, uh, we look to the update of the Majestic 1 trial, actually, you have roughly 21, 22 uh, months of uh, a duration of response for those responding. And this is uh, very well reflected here uh, when looking into the progression-free survival and uh, overall survival, again, highlighting the importance of achieving a very good, uh, complete response. And these patients who achieve CR are really going to do uh, very well. But it's not only about the standard risk. Actually, when you look across the different groups, and of course, uh, we know that the high-risk cytogenetics, extramedullary disease, high disease burden are always a matter of concern and actually like for CAR T cells, bispecific, do work relatively well. Again, again, I think we are improving the outcome, the dismal outcome of these bad prognosis patients. Unfortunately, we're not yet reaching the same level as the standard uh, risk. Like for CAR T cell, one, I would say, reasonable and uh, good question to ask is, do we see the same results in the real-life setting, the real-world evidence? And the short answer is yes. And when we look to this presentation uh, that will be uh, given tomorrow, actually, in this annual meeting, and you guys probably participated into uh, this uh, real-world experience, you were brave enough because the patients who were treated in the real life actually had even... Uh, more bad prognostic features. They were more advanced, which highlight, I think, that bispecific antibodies are a sort of, can be universally uh, used, and we can discuss later whether there are really true contraindications 
to bispecific antibodies. And the real world experience is apparently uh, in line with what we've seen from clinical trials. And we do have a similar beautiful story with ranetamab, which is another BCMA-directed uh, bispecific uh, antibody. Please don't ask me what is the difference between teclistimab and ranetamab. All I know is that they both target BCMA, and it's always good to have two different options. Uh, but definitely, I think ranetamab uh, was developed and approved thanks to also a very robust uh, development program. It started with a phase one trial, the so-called magnetism one uh, trial, published almost like a couple of months ago in Nature Medicine by Dr. Bayless and colleagues. In this phase one trial, which really tackled highly advanced patient, could already show a 64% of response. But there were also a very uh, accurate, I would say, very precise documentation about the pharmacokinetics, but also uh, how it ended up actually with this fixed dose, subcute dose of aranatamab of 76 uh, milligram. This is based on the uh, pharmacokinetics studies, uh, which are elegantly described in the paper, but also... I think this phase one uh, trial served as a basis to develop uh, the strategies to mitigate uh, the CRS. And the approval of aranatamab uh, came from this uh, magnetism uh, three uh, study, single arm, similar to the Majestic one, which was also published uh, in August uh, this year in Nature Medicine, and also showing uh, a 61% uh, overall response rate. So that reminds you, actually, the introductory slide of Dr. Munshi showing that now we have really uh, increased the bar very high, above 60% in those patients. And similar to teclistimab, you are able to achieve CR in one-third of these patients who received a median of six lines of therapy. And when you look to the durability of response, and I think the community is now uh, very familiar with this kind of uh, uh, diagram uh, to show the responding uh, patient, actually, uh, again, uh, all subgroup of patient can benefit, but we also see durable responses. And again, it's very intriguing with bispecific antibodies because in the real life, we have patients for whatever reason who had to stop and are in continuous CR uh, for uh, long periods. And uh, this is again reflected here in the PFS and overall survival outcomes. When you look to those patients who achieved uh, CR, for instance, we're really talking about like almost 90% uh, um, of uh, percentage of responses around uh, 15%, the probability of uh, a durable uh, response. And similar to teclistimab, we will have an update, uh, longer follow-up uh, during this meeting. 
So I kindly invite you uh, to attend uh, the session on Sunday uh, where uh, we will show data on longer follow-up. And of course, uh, you will be very happily surprised to see the impressive median uh, PFS that is now uh, achieved uh, in the Magnetism 3 trial. It looks like that we're going uh, to initiate a bispecific antibody against BCMA uh, in this patient. And uh, obviously, like for CAR T-cells, I'd like to discuss with my colleagues about the safety and side effects that one needs to take into account. Nikki. So I think uh, just, just focusing on my specifics, um, the side effect profile in some ways would mimic in general what we see with CAR T-cells. You see CRS happening in high number of patients. Uh, majority, um, small incidence of neurotoxicity. And as I said for CAR T-cell, I think both are quite easily manageable. And, and that's why one of the topics for discussion later in this session is going to be how can we do this outpatient, because we can. I think the, my major concern with bispecific to some extent also with CAR T-cell is the infection-related complication. Um, bispecific is currently, and that's another point for discussion, currently given indefinitely or for a long period of time. Suppresses plasma cell function, normal plasma cell function impacts other cellular component as well. And these patients are at a significant risk for infectious complication. And this is where I think instituting the preventative measure, because infections in a large number of majority of patients we can prevent, should be considered upfront uh, proactively so that we don't get into a very complicated fungal infection and or other bacterial infection. But I think that would be my short answer, if you think it's a short answer, um, for the first bullet. Rina, do you see yeah. there's the same concerns? Uh, agreed. I think lymphoma CAR-T is the highest risk CR neurotoxicity, then myeloma CAR-T, then myeloma bispecifics, right? I think it's always a grade lower as... Um, uh, Sagar Lonial always says too, and, and I agree that yes, we have high risk of CRS, but they're all grade one, usually fevers. For this patient, I would say, again, with so much disease burden, they likely are going to get that CRS. And, and probably I would admit this patient if they had a lot of disease going in um, to watch them very closely. And, and again, IVIG infections are the biggest thing um, and potentially why we're excited to see studies that have less often of the drugs and one day maybe even fixed duration. Um, which could help the infection part, um, specifically with the BCMA bispecific. Yeah, and I, I think that the timing of infections may be a little bit different in CAR-T and bispecifics, meaning that in the acute phase of CAR-T, sometimes you get these post-transplant prolonged cytopenias, neutropenia, and that lasts for one or two months, and those patients will be at high risk for infections, but then that will eventually hopefully improve. With bispecifics, at least the current paradigm with continuous dosing, you'll have not only... Uh, depressed humoral immunity, so decreased immunoglobulin levels, but impaired T-cell uh, mediated immunity as well. And so, I, you know, infections are very, very important to monitor and manage uh, with bispecifics. I can't state that enough. Uh, and so it's just important to be very aggressive. So an aggressive with prophylaxis, PGP prophylaxis, IVIG, uh, infection surveillance, vaccinations, things like that. So it's just very important to recognize that um, if we support patients uh, properly uh, in terms of infection prophylaxis, uh, th this can be significantly mitigated. 
Wonderful. I think we are very well aligned. And uh, actually, these bispecific antibodies, it's a learning curve, and uh, they are very popular. I mean, we are very enthusiastic about CAR T-cells, but I can tell you for a country like France, just by launching a compassionate use program in a year or so, uh, more than a 1,000 patients received teclistimab, uh, hundreds received ranetimab, which highlight, obviously, the numbers for CAR T-cells are uh, not the same. And actually, uh, probably we know very well how to manage, for instance, uh, CRS, uh, because uh, both the development of teclistimab and ranetimab included uh, this step-up dosing uh, procedure, uh, which actually allows really to mitigate or almost abrogate uh, the risk of a significant uh, or a serious severe CRS, and this is really uh, very uh, good news, including in those patients with high uh, risk uh, disease burden. And when it comes to the uh, global overall safety experience with the bispecific antibodies, what we can glean uh, from the literature, whether from Majestic 1 or Magnetism 3, actually, we can have like three groups. Uh, cytopenias, but we are in hematology. We are with patients who are heavily pretreated, including alkylating agents. CRS, nicely mitigated with a step-up dosing. But uh, interestingly, and this is really uh, the most important part, the issue of infections, which was highlighted by uh, Dr. Uh, Munshi. Uh, and uh, this is actually... Uh, the same story, uh, both in uh, the uh, Istamab or Iranetamab uh, experience. But there are also some good news that beside the prophylactic measures, besides the supplementation with IV immunoglobulins, if you are able to switch to twice mon monthly, and this has been incorporated in the Iranetamab protocols and used, but it has been recently, I think, approved for teclistimab. Actually, it is likely by, by really uh, decreasing the frequency of uh, infusion of bispecific antibodies in those responding patients, you will likely decrease the risk of uh, opportunistic uh, infections. And the pre-medication, and I like this diagram because it clearly shows, for instance, when it comes to uh, CRS, Actually, uh, at the uh, beyond dose, uh, the, the fourth dose, it always uh, uh, disappeared, and it's not really a, a big matter of concern. But again, the issue is about preventing, anticipating, uh, providing prophylaxis uh, against the uh, opportunistic infections, whether bacterial, viral or a fungal infection. Because at the end of the day, you are mobilizing the whole T-cell repertoire against the tumor antigen. So there would be some worries about surveillance against other, I would say, viruses. But again, I believe that we in hematology are quite familiar with the management of highly immunocompromised patients. And we know how to monitor frequently for viruses, uh, we know how to do preemptive treatments 
uh, and uh, we know how to do prophylaxis, but also uh, immunoglobulin supplementation. And it's just about like reminding all of us because myeloma patients are usually ambulatory patients. So we were not used uh, to these infections, but I think with these guidance, I'm not saying they are the only guidelines, but this is just a very uh, good example that we can uh, help uh, prevent all of these infections. So last but uh, not least, I'd like to uh, ask my uh, colleagues whether they would have considered another option for this patient because we know that we have another bispecific antibody uh, being approved now against GPRC5D. Any thoughts on this, Nikhil? I think um, BCMA, and we'll, maybe we'll have time, we can talk about BCMA loss, etc. Um, two possibilities, you go uh, alternate BCMA targeting treatment or use alternate target, uh, which we have fortunately access to, at least for bispecific at the moment, which is GPRC5D. And so if you have an access, I think that would be one of the considerations. Priya? Agreed. I, I think if this is a patient I wanted to get to CAR-T and I wanted to get them to CAR-T soon, maybe I would do the GPRC5D bispecific just for the antigen piece and then quickly get them to CAR-T when I can, but no other reason. Yeah, I, I agree. I would consider GPRC5D in this scenario. Excellent. So a quick word about GPRC5D, another fantastic bispecific antibody. It's a different target. Talketamab has been uh, approved. Similar, uh, the idea uh, is a similar mechanism of action, and we already know that the response rate is above 70%, uh, and in those patients with uh, triple-class refractory, similar to the BCMA-directed bispecifics, we can achieve more than uh, 64-65% responses. The safety profile is slightly different so you need to be aware of some uh, side effects like dysgosia, skin, nail uh, side effects. So we uh, still uh, need to work on how uh, to uh, mitigate uh, these uh, side effects, which can alter the quality of life of the patient. But this is uh, being now done. And I think the community, again, is more and more familiar with the way how to do it. And obviously, you can, the future come very quickly. You can even envision uh, a dual targeting for both BCMA and GPRC5D. And this has been already done in this so-called redirect uh, one uh, trial. I'll be very quick. 96% of uh, responses. So take home message. I hope I have convinced you that today we have in hand not only the CAR T cells as a form of immune therapy, but also bispecific antibodies which are immediately available. The safety profile is well characterized and we do have the, uh, I would say, appropriate mitigation measures. Thank you very much for your attention. All right, um, so it's really a pleasure and honor to be here at the session talking about raising the bar of BCMA. And in the last part of this session, I'll be focusing on some of the novel 
bispecies antibodies currently in clinical development. So we'll start with our case. And so this is a similar case that was uh, discussed earlier. And in summary, uh, Carolyn, 67-year-old woman, uh, she had an ECOG of one initial presentation with standard risk multiple myeloma, received frontline daratumumab BRD, followed by autologous stem cell rescue uh, and lenalidomide maintenance, second line elotuzumab, pomalidomide and dexamethasone, third line carfilzomib and dexamethasone, and fourth line isatuximab, carfilzomib and dexamethasone, with a fairly short duration response, the last line of therapy at three months. And now the patient has disease progression and has evolution, uh, evidence of some clonal evolution with high risk features with 1Q21 amplification. And I think the question to ask my colleagues is um, really, uh, I think the second bullet point is that, you know, if let's say we are considering a bispecific T-cell antibody targeting BCMA in this scenario, we have actually a number of options. We have two commercially approved options. We have a couple that are in clinical development that may get approved later on. And so um, what would be the most important factors? You know, there are similarities, but there are some nuances and differences between the antibodies that would make you consider one antibody versus another. And maybe I'll start in reverse order, uh, Mohammed. Uh, what are some of your uh, important factors that you would consider? Well, obviously, I mentioned telketamab, but also uh, I think we have now sevostimab under development, and uh, obviously these are good options. Yeah, I think new targets are always um, great, um, but I think if comparing within the BCMA group, it's really hard, right? Efficacy, safety seem to be similar, but if you can find a way to decrease the toxicity, the infections, that's huge. I think less often the patients have to come in. We know that helps their quality of life. Um, and then getting their disease down faster, especially for those patients with a lot of disease. So if there's one that gets to a better dose faster and can bring it down, again, little nuances, but I, I think those could make a difference. All right. So um, in the next 20 minutes or so, I'll be talking primarily about four bispecific T-cell antibodies. So the first three Limbaceltamab, ABV383, and Onutamab all target BCMA on the myeloma cell and CD3 on the T-cell receptor. Although you can see on the administration uh, uh, routes and summary of how they're given on the right column, uh, there are some subtle differences between the three antibodies, which we'll get into a little bit more detail. And the fourth antibody, Sevostimab, actually targets a, a new target, FCHR5, uh, and then CD3 on the T-cell receptor. And this is an exciting approach to targeting, again, a different antigen besides BCMA and GPRC5D that has shown promise in clinical trials. So limbaceltamab is a bispecific T-cell antibody that targets BCMA on the myeloma cell and CD3 on the T-cell receptor. You see the structure of limbaceltamab as an IgG-based uh, bispecific antibody seen on the left lower-hand corner of the slide here. And limbaceltamab was evaluated, is being evaluated in a linker MM1 study. And in the part two or the phase two part of the linker MM1 study, it's two different doses of limbaceltamab, either 50 milligrams or 200 milligrams uh, was being studied to optimize dose selection. And in the 200 milligram dose, which is the recommended dose, 117 patients uh, were enrolled in the phase two parts of the study, heavily pre-treated median of five prior lines of therapy about three-quarters of patients were triple class or factory. 
And you can see on the right part of the screen and the bar graph, the over response rate was quite uh, uh, promising, 71%, majority being a very good partial response or better 59%. And there was a high rate of MRD negativity in patients who were valuable for MRD testing. Uh, the responses also appear to be durable and deepened with time. So this is a swimmer's plot of responding patients uh, on the linker MM1 study in the 200 milligram cohort. And at a median follow-up of approximately six months or so, uh, there was about 84% six-month probability of duration response uh, with lymphoceltimab therapy. And in terms of the progression-free survival at the time of uh, the current follow-up of six months, the median PFS had not been reached. Uh, in the 200 milligram cords, a 73% uh, probability of six-month progression-free survival, and more mature data from a later data cut will be presented uh, at a poster session on Monday uh, with the linker mm one study. Uh, an important aspect of this uh, study is the characterization of cytokine release syndrome. We know that cytokine release syndrome is, a, uh, is an adverse event we see with CAR-T therapy and bispecifics. And overall, the incidence of cytokine release syndrome was relatively low. So the overall incidence was 46%, uh, with the majority being grade one in severe. So the majority of these were just fevers uh, and were managed uh, fairly easily. Uh, and the majority of these events occurred during the step-up dosing period with, within the first three doses. And something to also to highlight is the kinetics of CRS were also a little bit different as well. So with IV bispecifics, Usually the median onset of CRS is more rapid, so within 24 hours, with the resolution within 24 hours. The subcutaneous by six, the, the onset is approximately 48 hours, so with resolution, that takes a little bit longer. Again, this is just due to the pharmacokinetics of administration of IV versus subcutaneous uh, therapies. And there is some quality of life data also being reported at this year's ASH meeting with Linda Sultzmet from the Linker MM1 study. And you can see here that in responding patients, the quality of life improved in terms of their physical functioning, decreased pain, decreased fatigue. I think this is not necessarily unique to lymphocytes, but across the board with BCMA bispecifics, that once patients do respond, have their myeloma under control, uh, these, these regimens don't involve dexamethasone, which often, often causes uh, some of the most side effects uh, with these regimens. And so patients um, actually have uh, improved quality of life uh, while on therapy, despite being on therapy continuously. Uh, and then finally, I uh, just wanted to highlight um, the dosing schedule lymphocytes, which is slightly different than some of the other BCMA bispecifics. So step-up dosing is given uh, one week apart. So initial dose of 5 milligrams uh, and week two, day one of uh, 25 milligrams. And the target dose is, is given on week one uh, or week three, day one of 200 milligrams. And essentially, uh, dosing is given weekly uh, for the first three cycles and then every other week for cycles four and five, and then patients attaining a very good partial response or better can then de-escalate the dosing frequency in a response-adapted approach to every four weeks starting cycle six and onward. So pretty rapid de-escalation of the frequency of therapy. As I mentioned earlier, because of the rapid onset and resolution of CRS, uh, this therapy actually required fairly minimal hospitalization for CRS monitoring. So only a 24-hour hospitalization uh, within the first two step of doses, which is also a very short period, perhaps relative to some of the other bispecifics uh, currently in clinical development. And so uh, based on the data from the Linker MM1 study, uh, there is a randomized phase three study, the Linker MM3 study, that will compare lymphoceltimab with standard of care elotuzumab, pomalidomide, and dexamethasone, 
an earlier relapse refractory multiple myeloma. So next I want to talk about onuctumab. So onuctumab is another BCMA bisotetyl antibody currently in clinical development. Uh, you can see here that the structural onuctumab is a little bit different. So it's a two plus one form. What does this mean? So essentially, uh, one arm of the antibody binds to CD3 on the T cell receptor, but there's actually two BCA binding domains. So that's what the two plus one refers to. And initially, onuctumab was studied uh, as an intravenous administration form, but this is now changed to subcutaneous administration. And you can see here the dosing schedule is given with step-up dosing with smaller doses given on days one and four, and then the target dose given uh, by day 15, and weekly dosing for the first three cycles, every other week dosing for cycles four through six, and eventually every four-week dosing from cycle seven and beyond. And updated data with onutumab was presented at EHA uh, last summer. And at the 30 milligram target dose, the response rates were quite encouraging, 65% overall response rate, majority of patients attaining a very good partial response or better. And the safety profile was also encouraging. So the, the right um, table here just summarizes the grade three or higher events, no grade three CRS, no grade three um, or higher ICANs. And the grade three rate of infections was fairly low, 10% actually, although this may be impacted by the shorter follow-up period. So with longer follow-up, perhaps the infection rate will increase uh, as patients are on therapy. And there'll be additional updated data with a Nutamab presented uh, at, at ASH on Saturday in a poster session, basically showing updated response rates at the 30 milligram target dose uh, at 69%. Again, majority of patients attaining a BGPR or better and these were, again, heavily pre-treated patients, uh, median uh, of four prior lines of therapy, about 63% uh, that were triple class refractory. So I think the question is, is, you know, are there really any differences between these BSA and bisexual T sign device besides rate of administration, step-up dosing schedule, uh, the frequency of dosing? Indeed, there may actually be some other nuances of these bisexual T sign bodies. Uh, uh, that uh, may be present. And, you know, some of this may be due to the different epitopes that these antibodies actually bind to on BCMA. And this is actually a paper that was recently published uh, at a Nazar Bayless's lab a few months ago. And um, really nice work that really looked at the mechanisms of resistance to BCMA by antibodies. They looked at teclistim and aransomab. So these are the two commercially approved BCMA by antibodies. And basically what they found was that antigen escape, uh, either through loss of BCMA through the biolic deletion 16P, or due to missense non-truncating uh, mutations, uh, point mutations of BCMA that prevented the binding of teclistimab or ransomab to the extracellular domain of BCMA. And when they modeled these mutations, these point mutations in cell lines, they found that anutamab was actually still able to bind uh, to the extracellular domain of BCMA. And, you know, it's probably likely that the verse have been true. Like, let's say you looked at uh, mechanisms of resistance with anuctamab. Maybe there were, there would be point mutations that teclisimab or rantamab could bind to. So I think the take-home message is, is that, you know, perhaps we may need to do more in-depth profiling of BCMA in the future. This is of the future, where we're actually profiling tumor antigen, GPRC5D, BCMA, looking at really at detailed mechanisms of uh, resistance uh, in, in BCMA. So not just about loss, presence or absence of BCMA, but actually actual mutations. You know, maybe it'll be something like EGFR mutations uh, uh, in lung cancer or BCR able uh, kinase mutations in CML. So we may need to get a little bit more detail on the nuances of these mechanisms of resistance uh, in the future within myeloma. 
So lastly, um, I'll talk about ABV383, uh, which is the third BSA bispecific T-cell antibody um, uh, that I wanted to discuss. And so the structure of ABV383 is also a little bit different as well. So it actually was designed with a low activating CD3 that at least preclinically seemed to decouple T-cell activation from CRS. And so this actually had important implications on the design of the study. So unlike all the other BCA bispecifics, which they were step-up dosing, incorporated with small initial dose, uh, intermediate second dose, and the target third dose, uh, actually ABV383 was designed with no step-up dosing. So the patients got the full dose of ABV383 initially. So this is nice, perhaps, for patients who are rapidly progressing and get the target dose right away. The other thing is that you know this, this drug is administered intravenously, but the dosing frequency is a little bit different. It's given every three weeks. So none, uh, there's no initial weekly, uh, then de-escalation from there on. And the responses are also encouraging as well. And so this initial data was published in the JCO uh, probably about a year and a half ago. Updated data will be presented um, at the ASH meeting in a poster session. We response rates, again, in the 60 to 65% range at the 40 milligram, 60 milligram dose. Uh, and the majority of patients attaining a VGPR or better. So um, going back to our, our clinical case, um, so we have a patient, um, same patient, Carolyn, 67-year-old woman uh, with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. And you know, after progression on fourth-line ezotuximab, carfilzone, dexamethasone, the patient did get a CAR-T therapy. So the patient got a BSMA-directed uh, CAR-T therapy, but then had progression after one year. And so really the, the question is, what is the role of biases in BCMA uh, sequencing? So I think the, the first question I'll ask uh, Nikhil is, uh, would you consider a BCMA biases T-cell antibody in this scenario? So, so I think uh, if that question is, can we, the answer is yes, we can. Uh, do we need to? Probably not, because we have an alternative target, which may, I may consider before going to BCMA again. So the and that question ends up being sequencing because we have more than one option. Yeah, I agree. I think the only patient would be if I think that um, they can't tolerate the toxicity, like if weight loss or taste is a big issue, then I would say for sure I would do a BCMA. But I, I agree, we have so many other options now that we don't have to worry about the antigen loss maybe right away. I think it depends on the availability. If I have only BCMA-targeted agent, I would definitely go for it, and there are data showing that it can work. Obviously, if I have access to another target, I would switch gears, although I may be able to come back to BCMA after. So if you allow to some washout period between two BCMA-directed therapies, purely empirical, but that's my thinking. So great points. Uh, so... Uh, you know, we do have some data now uh, with both teclosimab and ransomab of the efficacy of these BCMA by T-cell antibodies in patients previously exposed to BCMA therapy. So again, if potentially there's limited options for therapy where you're considering retreatment with BCMA uh, down the road, uh, you know, potentially BCMA uh, by T-cell could be an option. This is Majestic 1, uh, cohort C, which did allow prior BCMA exposure. And primarily, these patients were exposed to an drug conjugate, likely belantamaphodotin or BCMA CAR-T. And you can see the responses exceeded 50%. So you can actually att attain a response uh, in these patients with prior BCMA exposure. You can tell from the source spot some of the responses were indeed uh, durable. And the safety profile seemed to be pretty similar, whether or not you're BCMA-naive or BCMA-exposed in this particular cohort. Similarly, there has been a pooled analysis of Alransimab 
uh, in four of the different magnetism uh, studies. And this was presented as an oral abstract at ASCO last year. And again, looking at approximately 87 patients with prior BCMA exposure, uh, a little over, uh, maybe about two-thirds of these were prior ADC exposure, and about a third of them were prior CAR-T exposure. And interestingly, you can see that the median, the actual overall response rates numerically actually were higher with prior CAR-T exposure, and this may lend to some of the mechanism resistance between the ADCs uh, with continuous BCMA target exposure versus a one-and-done CAR-T, and also the median PFS and the median duration response all seem to be, favor those who got BCMA CAR-T versus a BCMA ADC. So again, this probably lends to some of the mechanisms of resistance and antigen escape. But again, the, the take-home message is, is that if if one needs to try BCMA by it, it it can be done with some data to support, although now we have many options now. So you, you may not need to do that right away. So what are some of these other targets? So I mentioned earlier that um, there is a relatively newer uh, by uh, antibody uh, called Savostamol, although data has been presented uh, regarding Savostamol for the last several uh, 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 congresses at ASH. And so Savostamol uh, targets a tumor antigen called FCHR5. So FCHR5 is highly expressed on B cells and plasma cells. Something very interesting about FCHR5, it actually is located on 1Q21. And there is some data actually that shows that there's increased FCHR5 expression on patients with gain or amplification 1Q21, which is a high-risk marker, as we know, for multiple myeloma. And so um, silvastamab um, is inter uh, administered intravenously. Uh, and it's in administered with initial step-up dosing, but eventually the dosing frequency goes to every three weeks, which is quite nice for patients with the less frequent dosing. And it's actually in the initial trials of Sofosamib also for fixed duration. So patients uh, basically were treated for 17 three-week cycles for Sofosamib. And some of the longer follow-up data shows that patients were able to maintain the responses even after discontinuing Sofosamib uh, after this time period. And what I want to highlight here is the over-response rates for with Sofosamib are, are quite good. Um, almost 60% over response rates. Many of these patients uh, actually had prior BCMA exposure. So about a third of patients had prior BCMA exposure. Again, basically take home message is that there are other tumor associated antigens being targeted in myeloma, GPRC5D, uh, FCHR5. I didn't actually mention Ferentimag, which is another GPRC5D uh, by T cell antibody being developed. And again, these uh, antibodies uh, are active in patients with prior BCMA exposure. So really, uh, the take-home points is that we have um, three beasts made by T-cell antibodies uh, with fairly mature data with encouraging efficacy and safety data state. Uh, there are many similarities between these beasts made by T-cell antibodies, although there are some subtle differences. And you know they include routes of administration, IV versus sub-Q, the step-up dosing schedule, hospitalization requirements with step-up dosing, the dosing frequency and the de-escalation, the frequency of dosing as part of the study design, and depending on the IV or subcutaneous formulation, the kinetics of CRS onset and resolution, which could impact the hospitalization requirements for CRS monitoring. Uh, there is data that's, um, that supports the use of BCM by physics after progression uh, on BCMA CAR-T with some clinical efficacy seen. And there's also novel targets in clinical development beyond BCMA. We heard about GPRC5D earlier and also FCHRFI with Sovastamem. And with that, I'll close and turn it back to Nikhil for the Q&A session. Thank you very much. So we have 50 questions uh, online. Uh, of course, uh, people from audience are welcome too. So I'm gonna go through more like uh, fast question, fast answer when parents are answering one question. 
because um, a lot to cover and they're all very good questions. So I can start with uh, Karina. Um, uh, um, what are your thoughts on outpatient CAR T cell therapy? Yeah, so we're doing it for Sulta cell already. Um, the biggest thing is making sure patients can be nearby and get to the hospital if they are having Sierra. So the second they get fevers, we bring them in. Um, we are lucky that we have support to be able to do that, to get patients in the hospital when they need it. So um, most centers don't have that ability. So I think it really depends on your infrastructure. But I am excited that with, you know, um, hopefully further and further um, support that people can build into their hospitals, more patients can do it outpatient. So it can be done, but needs uh, quite a work. Um, Hans, uh, how long do you continue IVIG? Um, so in the, in the context of bias business, I, I uh, use it continuously. I basically targeted an IgG number greater than 400. So basically give it prophylactically. So essentially as needed, we're checking it typically every month and then usually ends up being monthly or every other month. Okay. Um, Mohamed, uh, are T-cell lymphoma leukemia EBV driven and do you follow for CMV in these patients? Well, uh, in our own experience, yes, we do follow, but this is not a universal recommendation. I think it is guided more by clinical symptoms. Obviously, if you have the luxury to be able to do PCR against CMV and EBV, then it would be great. But otherwise, it's driven mainly by the clinical symptoms. So uh, there's a question about persistence of CAR T-cell. We always said persistence is important because that's like a long-term maintenance. Do you think persistence is so critical? And what do we do to expand it, if that's true? Yeah, I, I mean, I still think persistence matters for most of our patients, even though we don't see cells three to six months for most of the products that we have right now. Um, you know, so there's a lot of myeloma kill that happens in that first. And this is why we don't have the plateau, I think, um, that, that lymphoma has, right? Um, the question is, we don't want them to last too long because then we might see more of a T-cell signal that we don't want. Um, so what's that perfect in between? And then is it going to be cell mods or imids or other bispecifics? that we use sort of as a consolidation that can help with that persistence. I think one of the data that has come out is that if you look at cell-to-cell -cell data, it doesn't have a long persistence, but have an outstanding PFS. So, so I think we are still rethinking the role and need and, and implications of having persistence in this patient population. I think there is still a very important consideration about sequencing, whether we could CAR-T or not. Is there any concern that responses post-CAR-T with bispecifics are different than responses post-bispecific CAR-T. So which one of the two you would prefer early if everything else being equal? There's some sense that post-CAR-T cell bispecific works, but other way around may not be as significant. Yeah, I think there's more emerging data. And actually, this was uh, data that was being uh, that was published recently for the U.S. Myeloma CAR T Consortium, uh, which basically showed that responses um, after BCMA target therapy with CAR T are not as good. Uh, whereas, as the data shown earlier, um, that you can potentially salvage patients with a, by a specific after CAR T. So I think this leads to the mechanism of resistance and just escape more uh, potential for mutations and deletions to occur with continuous exposure to obesity by physics. So I think in general, the sequence, if everything was on the table, CAR-T, then by specific. So then the question, 
Ahmad, is that, and, and there are two questions on that. Can we use bispecific as maintenance? And can we use bispecific as um, uh, bridging therapy? Yeah, so uh, the, the question of the sequence today, all our answers are purely empirical because I'm not aware of any controlled trial because we say and we've seen that bispecific after CAR T cells work better than CAR T cell after bispecific. But I can ask the question, if we collect the T cells before starting the bispecific, and prepare. Is it about resistance to a given signaling pathway, the BCMA, or is it about the exhaustion of the T cell? That's one point. Now, the second point, and we do have actually experience in France, in Germany, I have colleagues, etc., that actually bridging with bispecific to CAR T cells is incredibly nice. You can bring patient into VGPR, CR, even with one cycle and then get them to CAR T cell. Obviously, the trials were not designed like this, but if you are able to do it, I believe that would be a very good idea. So I think any comment, this is an important enough question that, uh, and again, in US and, and probably elsewhere too, can you give both these treatments simultaneously and more from insurance point of view or coverage point of view, can it be done? I think it needs to be studied, yes. And I think Malambir is a great point. We have a lot of retrospective data but not really random, you know, prospective data to look at these really, really in a systematic, uh, uh, detailed way. And so I think that that needs to be studied. Yeah, I think the toxicity is the biggest question too, right? Efficacy, if you're using the same antigen versus not, of course, are we, are we down-regulating the antigen and you're not going to get a great kill as well? We don't know. The toxicity, do you need a washout between that bispecific and the CAR-T before or after um, that hopefully won't have a neurotoxicity, you know, target uh, that we see down the road or anything like that. Um, again, we want these T cells to last, but how long do we really want them to last? So I think I think it's amazing and I'm excited that the trials are actually going to look at this. Um, but yeah, it's still the safety piece of it. Then the question is, um, is there a role for CAR D or bispecific in CNS disease? So we can look at now subgroup of disease. We can start with the question on CNS disease. So I can add, I think, modes in the, the audience. Um, so one of our junior faculty actually is putting our CNS um, in the consortium together. And there are you know, not very many patients. But yeah, we've actually seen some great responses um, for patients that have CNS involvement for CAR-T. A lot harder to get them through. But again, um, I think bispecifics are another potentially great option. Um, again, toxicity, we have to look at and make sure. But I wish we can include some of these patients on some of our trials as cohorts. I think one of the issues ends up being that all our um, regulatory studies exclude those patients. Our data ends up being limited to start with till we are in the real world, where I think there is a good beginning of data that some of these may have uh, efficacy. Um, related question, treating cranial neopalsy complication observed in some of the CAR T cell therapies. Uh, um, uh, any comments on that, especially the, if steroids are used, how would you use it? It's a it's an open question uh, in the sense it's 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 treating CNS toxicity basically. Uh, I mean, go ahead. Trina. No, you go. Uh, I was just going to say that. I mean, if if in those cases we treat typically corticosteroids, and basically once the symptoms resolve, we want to taper steroids as quickly as possible. Uh, there has been some cases of refractory. Uh, um, 
uh, neurologic symptoms and maybe intensification of therapy and, and just some data using even cyclophosphide in those cases could be used. Uh, that'd be rare situations, but you know, if, if needed, you know, basically we treat with steroids as a mainstay of therapy. So there are two related questions I might just answer. One is in regards to patient having um, plasma cell leukemia, can CAR T cell be utilized? I think it's one of the scenario where it can be very effective. The key ends up being how do we take patients for CAR T when they have plasma cell leukemia? Similar to the aggressive patient we discussed, do they need bridging with something effective? And the best measure to hold the disease while we prepare the CAR T cell is important. Collecting cell is not as easy because if the percentage of circulating cells are high enough, producing CAR T cell is, is, is of a concern. So bringing the disease burden down so a purer plasma cell uh, preparation is, uh, um, this is done, T cell preparation, and then take patient. Is one case report in leukemia where CAR T cells were prepared, but the CAR construct entered into a leukemia cell Patients got that product, and that particular leukemia cell transduced with CAR was quite resistant to any treatment, and there was a permanent relapse. doesn't happen in myeloma because we don't have much frequent uh, circulating cells to that extent, and myeloma cell transduction ends up being of a, 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 a different uh, consideration. The second question is about can we treat patients with renal failure to what extent? Um, the 1.8 was the case. But we have all treated patients with significant renal dysfunction. We have experience in using CAR T cell, even in patients who have it, uh, who are on dialysis. Requires spatial management, requires uh, setup and experience in handling this. But either and both of the treatment, biospecific and CAR T, can be considered. I wouldn't say I would do it in everybody, but can be considered even if patient has an extreme or high degree of um, um, renal insufficiency in, in this patient. Um, and the next question is about, um, can CAR T be prepared and then frozen for use later when needed? Well, in theory, we would love to have this, and this uh, is uh, being done, for instance, in uh, some lymphoma uh, constructs. Uh, as far as I know today, with the currently tested construct in myeloma, we don't have this option. This is probably about the future. So I think we, we most of our products come frozen to us. So let's say somebody gets an infection like COVID, we can actually wait to give it until they recover, et cetera. The problem, I think, though, is where do we store them if it's years from now, right? It, it, the intention to delay is the hard part. It's more the storage and, and being able to do all that. But agree, that would be great if we could do it at diagnosis. Yeah. So the really good question is, can you give the same CAR T cell again to the same patient? The product is made. Half is given because of the dose. The other half is sitting in the freezer. Three years later, patient relapses. Would you use the same material again in the patient? I think it has been tested. Unfortunately, the efficacy didn't prove to be wow effect. So obviously, ideally, you would love to switch gears and use another construct or at least go to a humanized uh, construct. But again, I think we're lacking this experience. But I would say in some patient, why not? Yeah. But that's not ISO. So in Karma 1, there were six, six responses out of 27 patients. So small number. In each of those six patients, 
because it was a dose escalation initial part. So each of the time, the second dose, patients who responded, the second dose was higher than the first. So maybe there is something to learn from that. Um, time will tell. One more question is, uh, what currently approved novel therapies do you believe would make the most successful combination with bispecific antibodies? You can also include some of the newer up-and-coming uh, immunomodulator in other drugs as well. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that the combination of targeting two bispecific GP or C5D and BCMA through the redirect data was very exciting, particularly extramedullary disease. So really trying to focus on those really hard to treat patient populations. I think the extramedullary data with, for instance, mesicnamide is also very exciting as well. So maybe combining uh, cell mod with the bispecific could be an, an interesting strategy to, uh, to then uh, get better response with EM disease. One of my bet for the future, for instance, let's call the uh, elderly myeloma patient, is to be able to give frontline bispecific antibody plus an anti-CD38 plus maybe an IMID and have a sort of a fixed duration treatment that would allow them to have uh, seven, eight years median PFS. We already know with Maya we have five years, so we may bring it to another eight years. And if you are a patient who is 75, I think uh, uh, this is really uh, the goal to achieve. Fixed duration treatment and maybe sort it out with one or maximum two lines of treatment. Yeah, I, being a CAR-T person, I think the GPRC5D CAR-T is coming down the road. I'm, I'm really excited about, um, especially putting it with the BCMA bispecific or a different target. Um, I do think different antigens and different mechanisms are, are what's going to help hopefully cure more of our patients soon. So I think that to summarize, I think we took uh, quite a few questions. Um, to summarize, I think it's an incredible time for us, uh, some of us doing this for a few decades, uh, some of us... Uh, uh, um, <laughs> One decade, I <That's> still... <laughs> uh, but all of us have been doing CAR-T for a long time now, as long as it existed. It's an incredible time with responses that we have never seen before. Um, and every year, there is tremendous progress uh, that benefits the patient. So with that, I think we'll conclude this uh, session. Thank you so much to my colleagues for being here, and thank you so much for being here. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Health Tree Foundation for Multiple Myeloma. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash MGG860. This activity is supported by independent medical education grants from Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Pfizer, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.